This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Kevin Miller and is from Trinity Sunday, the third of the three great feasts. This sermon also begins our summer series, Growing Together in God's Household. When my oldest brother was born in the early 1950s, it was a dangerous time to be born in America. As shocking now as it is to hear, out of every 30 births at that time, one baby died. And the reason was because of the teaching, which was spread from obstetrician to obstetrician and from delivery room nurse to delivery room nurse, that if a baby were born that was malformed, perhaps, or too small, or blue and not breathing very well, that there was nothing you could do. You would list it as stillborn and lay it aside and wait for it to die. A woman named Virginia Apgar, an anesthesiologist, even though she had never delivered a baby, either as a mom or as a doctor, was appalled. And she said, I do not believe that conventional teaching. There has to be something that can be done. And so she developed an ingenious score you've probably heard of called the APGAR score, in which the obstetricians and delivery room nurses were forced to evaluate the health of that newborn at one minute and at five minutes after birth. And because doctors are not only compassionate, they are competitive, they began to want to improve their scores. And so when a child would be born, they would take the score, and if it was low, they said, well, why don't we start warming the child and see if that helps? And it did. And then when a child was born and looked a little blue, they said, why don't we try giving it some oxygen? And they did, and the score went up. And then that led over time to the discontinuation of general anesthesia and a move to epidurals and spinals, and then prenatal ultrasounds and fetal heart rate monitors. And today in America, out of every 500 children that are born, only one is lost. Every year, because of the truth of what Virginia Apgar knew in her heart to be true, over 100,000 children in America's lives are spared. False teaching, true teaching. False teaching always hurts people. You look at the history of our country, in which it was assumed and known and taught in our culture that blacks are inferior to whites. That teaching gave cultural support to the enslavement of millions of people and to an actual legislative settlement in which an African-American would be counted as three-fifths of a person. False teaching always hurts people. And when false teaching comes into a Christian community like ours, friends, it is like lead in the drinking water. And that is why Jesus taught his followers, be on your guard against certain teachings. The apostle John said, if anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Jesus Christ, don't even invite them into your home or give them any encouragement. Paul said, if anybody comes to you and teaches a gospel other than the one we've received from Jesus Christ and passed on to you, then let him be cursed. It is one of the biggest teachings of the Bible. It is one of the clearest teachings of the Bible. It's one of the most consistent teachings of the Bible that you should watch out. I should watch out. We should watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false prophets. Use our discernment. Don't get taken in. 
Now that raises the question for all of us, every single person here this morning. Well, how do I tell the false from the true? Is there any way that when somebody tries to pass me the counterfeit 20, I can recognize it and say, sorry? How do I tell? Well, if God is my helper, I want to give you four criteria this morning that are so deeply on bedrock of Scripture, bolded in, so clear that by the time this sermon is done, there would not be a person here this morning who would have any lack of clarity. You would not be unclear. You would not be confused. You would not be uncertain. But you would be ready and you would be kept safe in case false teaching or false teachers are encountered in your life. Let's look at that together. Now we're turning to 1 Timothy. And this morning we're beginning an eight-week study of this important New Testament book. So if you would, just let me set a little context for the whole book so we know where this teaching is coming from. Verse 1. This is a letter, and it's from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus who gives us hope. So Paul was one of the first Christian missionaries ever, and as you may know, he was responsible for writing maybe about a third of our New Testament documents. And most of Paul's writings were to an entire church full of people, but not this one. Verse 2, I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, who's Timothy? On Paul's first missions trip, he went through what is now western Turkey, and he got to the town where Timothy lived and preached there. It's possible that Timothy even became converted to Christ through Paul's teaching. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that on Paul's second missions trip, when he went back through that same area, the Christians there were like, hey, have you checked out Timothy? This is a bright young man. He's got a lot of promise for the gospel. And Paul's like, I agree, and added him to his missions trip. Paul laid his hands on Timothy and prayed for him, ordained him to gospel ministry, and Timothy was with Paul every step of the way for the final 17 years of Paul's life. Every time Paul talks about Timothy, he can't help himself. He's like, my son, my dear son, my son whom I love. And at one point he says, I have nobody else like him. And so it was Timothy that Paul chose for one of the most difficult and dangerous assignments he ever sent someone on. It's near the end of Paul's life. He's maybe 57, 58 years old. And he takes this young man, 31, 32, something like that. And here's his assignment, verse 3. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. And Paul knows this is going to be a fight, Timothy. It's going to be a battle. Look at verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples I threw them out of the church, meaning, and handed them over to Satan. Again, they're out of the protective sphere of the church so they might learn not to blaspheme God. So here's your assignment, Timothy. You have to go up against teachers who are older than you. You have to go up against teachers who used to be elders in the church until I asked them to leave, and yet they still have a following, they still have an influence, and people are still teaching the teachings that they were teaching. That can't happen. Now, that should wake us all up right there and I say right away, we should all know, it is not always easy to tell false teaching from true. This is a church in Ephesus here where Paul stayed and was their primary preacher for three years. You talk about good teaching. 
They had Paul for three years. And still, after he left, they got swept up in this whole new exciting teaching that had come along. And that's because heresy is never all wrong, see? It starts with some truth. It builds on some truth, and then it takes that truth, oversimplifies it, exaggerates it, and somehow twists it, stretches it, so that it starts to do violence to even more important truths. And heretics are always confident, verse 7. They don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. So when these teachers stand up, like Hymenaeus, Alexander, everybody's like, wow, he really seems like he knows what he's talking about. This guy's like really solid. And they're getting taken in. Now, as I mentioned, I'm going to give you four criteria this morning by which you can tell the difference between false and true teaching. But before I do, I just need to give you one minute, if you'll indulge me, of what was the false teaching here that Timothy had to stop. And this will be important as we work through this for you to understand it. All right, if you see the name Hymenaeus there in verse 20, he pops up again in 2 Timothy, the next letter that Paul writes, which you don't have in your bulletin, but I'll read there. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer, as in the case of Hymenaeus, remember him? And Philetus. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. Now, what were these guys saying? They were saying, look, Didn't Paul say, when we're buried with Christ in baptism, we're raised in newness of life? So we're in the resurrection now. We got heaven now. You got your best life now. It's all kingdom come. And you go, well, wait a second. Because, you see, we know the orthodox teaching that we we live between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We live between the down payment of the good things to come and the full payout. So we don't get the full payout now. So you go, well, who would get taken in by something like that? Can I tell you millions of people watch TV prosperity preachers who are promising resurrection now, your best life now. And these guys look good. They're confident. They got tans. They got really nice suits. And they're saying, you're a Christian. Why should you ever suffer physical sickness? Why should you ever have a financial setback? And people love it. All right. Now, still, though, you go, well, what's the big deal? So that's a little overhyped. But why would that be such a problem, Paul? Verse 5. It's all in the results, man. What happens when these teachings get going? Paul says, the purpose of my instruction, meaning the apostolic truth that came from Jesus Christ to the apostles, to me, it's been tested and passed down, is that all believers would be filled with love. When I teach, the end result is people have more love in their lives. When they teach, you know what? more self-centeredness, spiritual self-centeredness. When I teach, people end up with a pure heart, number two. They end up with an impure heart. When I teach, a clear conscience is what I leave people with. They end up with a muddy conscience, an unresponsive conscience. And when I teach, they come out with genuine faith. And these other people following Hymenaeus and all that, they come out with a fake faith. Now, let me unpack that for you with these four things to ask of any teaching to find out if it's true or false. Number one, does it cause me to love or look down on others? Does it cause me to love or look down on others? And, and, and really scrutinize for yourself. 
to say, is this teaching increasing my capacity to love others in in hidden service, in self-sacrifice, or is it causing me to think I'm actually, well, hate to say it, a little spiritually better than you? And maybe you need to ask some friends if you're not sure. Now, here's what was going on, and we read this in 1 Timothy 4, which you don't have in your bulletin, but I'll read for you. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. They'll say it's wrong to be married. See, you're in the resurrection now. You can't be burdened with the tiresome, daily, earthy humbleness of marriage. Are you kidding me? You'll never grow spiritually with that. And so here's what's happening in the church in Ephesus. People who are engaged to be married are breaking off their engagements. Going, yeah, I know it's going to be rough for you. Sorry to do that to you, but hey, I'm going on with God. I got a spiritual destiny. That's what I heard at the teaching. People in, 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 in marriages in that church, here's what's going on. The wife's going, man, that teaching was so amazing. I'm in the resurrection now. I got a, I got a spiritual life to pursue. I cannot be bothered. Look, this guy is from the old order of life, okay? He's not in the resurrection. Have you ever heard him burp? I mean, I cannot be tied down with that. And how often, friends, do we hear people going, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Um, and so what, what Paul's saying is, look, if the teaching you're receiving, if the teaching you're putting to work in your life, if it's not making you love other people in humble, behind-the-scenes service and self-sacrifice, it's garbage. Number two, is this teaching causing me to be more pure or impure? Pure or impure? That's what Paul says. He says, the result of my teaching is a pure heart. What does he mean by that? He's saying, you've got to ask yourself, is this teaching causing my heart to become more consecrated and holy for God? Or, or is it giving me reasons why I don't have to stay pure? You see, these teachers who were teaching the Old Testament law were teaching it in a mystical way, but what they were doing was gutting it of any moral teeth. And so that's why Paul has to say, in verse 8, we know that the law is good when it's used correctly, which is what? To restrain sin, to convict people of sin. Paul's teaching was never, I give you a pass on the moral requirements of the law. It was, I know that you'll only fulfill them through the power of the indwelling spirit. But I'm not giving you a pass on this, friends. We had a major challenge to this truth right here in this church 25 years ago. In God's goodness and providence, many members had come to resurrection who had spent time in the homosexual lifestyle, the lesbian lifestyle, and that had been very painful for them, very disorienting, traumatic even. And they came to us pastorally and they said, would you walk with me as I try to walk with Christ? I know it's not going to be easy, but would you help me? And we said, we'll do whatever we can. You're safe here and we love you. We're going to walk the way of Jesus Christ together. And at that point, we were in a different denomination under a different bishop. And that bishop was actively teaching the opposite. He was saying, live out. Live it all out. I'll I'll ordain you. I'll release you into ministry. And it finally came to a crisis of pastoral conscience. Are we going to follow that? Or are we going to commit ourselves to the people that we took into our pastoral care? We said, you know what? Whatever it costs, we're doing this for them. We gave up our building. You wonder, why did you wander around for 20 years with trailers every Sunday morning? For that reason. 
We gave up chalices. Our pastors gave up their pensions. We lost banners, everything. And we started over because we said the Old Testament moral law has not been invalidated by the coming of Jesus Christ. And today there's so many Christians all across America who are asking the question, when's the church going to get a clue? When's it going to wake up and just not take homosexuality seriously? Can I tell you when? Verse 10. Those who are sexually immoral, when we give everybody a pass there, or our slave traders. The day the church signs off on enslaving human beings and trafficking in them is the same day we'll change the other part of the verse. False teaching always hurts people. Number three, is this teaching causing my conscience to be more alive or more dead? Is it causing my conscience to be more alive or more dead? You'll see the word conscience in this passage three times, and it's multiple times elsewhere in First and Second Timothy. The conscience is God's mean, God means of bringing conviction. It, it has to be healthy. But what can happen under false teaching is that one of two things happen. Either your, your conscience is made hyperactive, where you're constantly scrutinizing yourself. Is this okay? Is this okay? I don't know. God, are you okay with this? Or it becomes unresponsive and dead, where it doesn't work when it should. Now, if I could give this analogy, the conscience in our lives is like a smoke detector in our homes. It's supposed to go off at certain times, but only at certain times. Now, suppose you had a smoke detector that every time the temperature in your house got up to 74 degrees, it would go off. So it's a warm day, you open the window, beep, beep, beep. You go, oh, stupid thing. You go over there, you reset it. Temperature gets back up to 74, beep, beep, beep. That stupid thing. Well, eventually, the battery's going off so often when it shouldn't, that on the night you actually have a house fire and you got to get out, it fails. The battery is dead. And Paul's saying, here's what's going on for you. They've been teaching you, chapter 4, verse 2, that it's wrong to eat certain foods. Even though God created every food to be enjoyed with thanks to him. So here's what happens. You sit down for a meal and your conscience goes into hyperactivity. You're like, is it okay to eat this? I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. Should I eat that meat? Should I eat that vegetable? I'm not sure. Maybe that's not the resurrection food. Maybe that's still the old order earthly food. And your conscience is getting wrapped up in these non-essential things. It's going off at 74 degrees when it doesn't need to go off. So then when there's a real issue that your conscience should attend to, like why is it there's so many people living here in DuPage County who are just barely scraping by and need the help of the church? Your conscience fails you because it's been overused in these non-essential things. Paul says, don't tolerate any teaching that does that. There was a church here in Wheaton in which it was the practice of this church. And I, I, have, I had friends there, so I want to be respectful, but let's just tell it truthfully. They so wanted to discern the mind of the Lord that they had this practice called inquiring of the Lord. And it went like this. When you had a decision, which they did multiple times every day, you would plead the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. And then you would ask God a yes or no question, a question that could be answered with a simple yes or a no. And then you would open your Bible at random and you would point at random. And if your finger landed on a verse that was a positive verse, like then Solomon returned to Jerusalem from the tabernacle, that's the one I just happened to get. That sounds kind of positive. God is saying yes. And if though you went over here and said, boom, and it says, uh, the devil said their mind to give to anyone I please. Oh, that must be a no. And if you got one that was uncertain, like the begats or something, then you do it again. So there was a one day a Bible study in this church. The moms were inside the house during the day. It was a beautiful spring day like this. While they're studying the Bible indoors, 
kids that were playing out in the front yard, and one of the kids darted out in the street after a ball, a loose ball, and he was hit by a car. Now, thank God, he was not desperately injured, but the mother stood there in the front yard and said, God, should we take him to the hospital? Okay, now, does it really, really require me to tell people that any teaching that gets makes God like a magic eight ball and makes us like a robot diminishes our human maturity and therefore the glory of God, that God wants you to be able to make a mature decision that says, you know what, we should probably take him and make sure there was no concussion, just, just to be sure. But what's going on there? You're so hyped up about these little things that don't matter, like, God, do you want me to wear this color shirt today? God, do you want me to go to work today? That there's no energy left in your conscience for those things that truly matter, which is when you arrive at work, the Holy Spirit says, you know what, your relationship with your boss is becoming toxic. Is the teaching making your conscience more alive or more dead? Last, number four, faith in God or focus on speculations? Is this teaching really about faith in God or focus on speculations? Here's what I mean by that. Is the end result of this teaching in my life that I am taken up into seeing what a good God has done for me in Jesus Christ, and I, I just I, it builds my faith in him? Or is it we're spending a lot of time thinking about these side matters and these extraneous matters? What they were working on, verse 4, were these things called spiritual pedigrees. We're not entirely sure what that was, but we think it was. They were taking the Old Testament genealogies, and they were reading your spiritual pedigree. Oh, I see in you that you are actually from the tribe of Caleb, and you are going to be a pioneer kind of thing, okay? Well, that's heady stuff. So everybody's lining up to get your pedigree, right? Okay, while you're listening to that teaching, are you listening to the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Are you listening to the indwelling power of the Spirit? Are you listening to how you can love your neighbor? No, you're focused on these little bitty things to the exclusion of the most important things. Now, maybe you had to, to live through the late late 90s, 80s, early 90s, to fully appreciate this, there was a teaching in the national church called Territorial Spirits. Anybody alive back then? Anybody know that teaching? Here's how it went. Based on a verse in the book of Daniel, it was taught that over every geographical region or city, there was some sort of demonic power. There was some sort of prince. And you could, through means, if you went to the conference and paid for the teaching, you would be told which demons it was. And so you would sit together in a hotel ballroom and you would call down those spirits and that was spiritual warfare. At the time, there was tremendous pressure on John Wimber, who was leading the early vineyard movement, to bring that teaching into his conferences and have that as part of the platform. And John wouldn't do it. And I was at a meeting where there were 150 or 200 leaders gathered with John here in Chicagoland and somebody said, John, why won't you let that amazing, exciting new teaching into the vineyard? And here's what John said. He said, people say I don't believe in spiritual warfare. I totally believe in it. But look in the New Testament. You know how the spiritual warfare is done? An apostle goes and plants a church. He goes, but you know what? We would do rather do anything. We'll even sit in a hotel ballroom for four hours and call down demons we don't know the names of rather than go next door, learn not know our neighbor, build a relationship with them, and tell them about Jesus Christ. He said, for me in the vineyard, we're going to stick with the main and the plain. The main and the plain. I was like, you go. I learned a lot that day. Is the teaching the main and the plain? Is it based on the apostolic witness? Has it been passed down? Or is it this obscure thing? 
Now, in the moments that we have to close, I want to try to ask this question, which is, so what? Now that I have this tool, which is helpful, I hope you don't have to use it often, but it's there for you as you need it. What does it mean for me? The first is, put yourself under a pastor, a preacher, a bishop, an elder, who holds to Orthodox Christian teaching, who believes and teaches the Bible and the way it's been understood through 2,000 years of spirit-led Christian witness in the church of Jesus Christ. Don't accept any substitutes for that. If you've got to leave over it, if you've got to give up a pension, if you've got to lose your building over it, do it. Put yourself under that. Second thing, and I am so thankful that we have that here with Stuart, our bishop. Second thing is submit to that kind of leadership. Heretics aren't heretics because they teach something wrong. Apollos got it wrong and had to be corrected. Peter got it wrong about accepting Gentiles, had to be corrected. You know what makes a heretic a heretic? It's teaching something wrong and refusing to be corrected when the godly authorities come in and try to correct you. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, Paul, you might be an apostle. You, your life might have radically changed, but you know what? My name's Hymenaeus. I'm going to go with me. That's what makes a heretic. We have to submit our hearts to authorities. Number three, soak yourself in the word of God. Study this book. Love this book. Live by this book. And then as God gives you opportunity, learn how Christians have written about this book. You'll see this big, wide river, but you'll know when things start to overflow the banks. And you'll, you'll develop a wisdom. And fourth and finally, this book is by an apostle and it's written to a pastor. Pastors do have a special charge under God to, to uphold good teaching and to stop bad. That said, you may not be a TSA agent, but if you see something, say something. You're in a Bible study, you hear something squirrely. Why don't you come in a respectful posture to the pastors here and say, you know what, I heard this. It didn't sound right, but maybe I don't understand. What is that about? Would you guide me on that? Would you help me on that? And discern it together. We'll, we'll take that seriously and we'll work on it together. Now, friends, I'm so thankful that we've had this season-long one of godly, uh, committed leaders here. But I just want to say, imagine if we keep that going. If every one of us were to redouble our commitment to the truth, the apostolic truth of Jesus Christ... And we were to, with all our hearts, refute to and refuse to accept that which is outside that truth. You know what would happen? I will tell you. We will be people who are marked as being filled with love. We'll be people with a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.